Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now I'd like to start off today's show with two quotes uh, which sort of introduce what we're going to be talking about today with, with my guest, Dr. Dawson Church. The first quote is from the Buddha, and he said, or he's, he's attributed with the saying that, We are shaped by our thoughts. We become what we think. When the mind is pure, joy follows like a shadow that never leaves. So that's Buddha who thought that all is mind. The second quote comes from Dawson Church, Church's book, uh, The Genie in Your Genes, and he quotes a Dr. Joy Brew as saying, We are in a school for gods in slow motion. We learn the consequences of thought. And so I think that both of these quotes sort of set the tone here for discussing the role of thinking, intentions, emotions in controlling what we are, our health, and perhaps even our world. Now, under what is known as the central dogma of genetics, a coined term termed by one of the most famous biologists of the 20th century, and that's Francis Crick, who you may recall with James Watson, is, is uh, credited with discovering the DNA molecule. Now, the central dogma says something like this. It says that information from DNA can, can only go one way, and that's towards protein or towards bodybuilding. That information cannot go the other way. And what this means is that the environment, beliefs, thoughts cannot affect our genes. And that's the central dogma, that it turns out that that central dogma is being upset, if not completely overturned in our day and age. And this is because of a new field with a pretty big name. It's called epigenetics. And that's the topic of today's show that we're going to be discussing this with Dawson Church, the author of the book The Genie in Your Genes, and also another book called Soul Medicine and a bunch of other books, which we'll be talking about now. Dawson Church uh, has a PhD. He's an award-winning author. His book, as I mentioned, The Genie in Your Genes, has been hailed as a breakthrough in the field of epigenetics. He has published all sorts of scientific papers with a focus on the self-healing mechanisms now emerging at the intersection of emotion and gene expression. He applies these breakthroughs to health and athletic performance at the EFT.universe.com website, one of the largest alternative medicine sites in the world. He has a Ph.D. and is the author emeritus of the journal Energy Psychology Theory, Research, and Treatment, and also founded the nonprofit Seoul Medicine Institute to research and train practitioners in energy psychology. So we're going to have a lot to talk about here. Dawson, welcome to the show. 
It's so good to be here. Thank you. Well, as I was saying before the show, what I do when I when I when I try to find guests is that if I find a book that interests me, a topic, and I try to track down the author, and I was lucky enough to track down you uh, because I thought your book, uh, The Genie in Your Genes, was a great not only. Um, discussion of epigenetics, but all sort of the revolving concepts that come out of that field, including the, the uh, growing productivity and the, and, the, and the growing value of energy psychology and energy healing. But before we get to that, let's set the tone a little bit here, and why don't you talk about what epigenetics is and why we should care about this. Sure. Well, why you care about it is, as you pointed out, the the original idea was that all of your physical characteristics and the way your body worked was caused by your genes. And in that paper in the journal Nature by Crick and Watson, they had a diagram and it showed DNA making this intermediate molecule called RNA making protein, and proteins are what the structure of our bodies are made of and how our bodies function. And so that was the old idea. That idea began to show cracks, though, in the 1980s, 1990s, especially around the turn of the last century, because we began to get experimental evidence that that wasn't true, that many things are affecting the expression of DNA, whether DNA is turned on or off, that don't come from within the DNA itself, that come from outside the DNA. And so this whole new field of epigenetics was born, things that are triggering gene expression from outside the genome. And so the current model is much more suggestive that only about 15% of your characteristics are hardwired. So things like eye color, height, hair color, obviously those things aren't changeable, but many, many, many things uh, are changeable and do change and respond dynamically even to intangibles like thought, feeling, and emotion. And that makes up by far the majority of the genome. These things are being turned on and off by all kinds of cues from the environment. And the environment can be the literal environment around us, so it can be cues like night and day. We have genes called clock genes, and they're turned off by the rhythms of nature, this rising and setting of the sun. That's why if we fly to Europe or if we fly to Asia, our clock genes have to reset themselves, and that can take a few days. We call it jet lag, and you can feel very distinctly in your body the effects of shifting the signals your genes are getting, those clock genes are getting from the the diurnal rhythm, the circadian rhythm of the day. And so that, that's one, one way in which our environment affects our genes and turns genes on and off. But the most interesting thing to me of epigenetics is the, the way that thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, all these intangible spiritual experiences, peak experiences, all of these things are turning genes on and off all the time. And those are things, unlike the rhythms of night and day, those are things that are very much under our control. So it turns out that by our thoughts, by the emotions we harbor, by our core beliefs, uh, 
with the the thoughts we we think repetitively, all of these things are nudging our gene expression in one direction or another, and that's what I, that's a field called behavioral epigenetics, which is my particular field of study and interest. And so this is opening enormous new possibilities of he- healing as we discover which techniques, like energy medicine, like mindfulness, like energy psychology, can have those effects on the genome. Yeah, and this this is something that. Uh is actually a revolution in in my opinion because if you look at the books published in the even in the 80s and 90s and I have a couple of them such as by Ernest Meyer the famous Harvard biologist who is credited with the um with the modern synthesis between darwinism and microbiology i.e. he had a lot to do with with structuring and with explaining, theorizing the central dogma. But these books, they really uh, promote the central dogma as the way of the world, as, as a fixed part of science, that there's nothing that the environment can do to affect genes or genes expression, which means that there's nothing that we can do to alter the course of what we might become because our destiny is fixed in our genes. And this is something extremely important because it comes down to to what degree are we determined by genes. And this field, and I think your statistic is very, very revealing here, very helpful, the 15% being sort of determined, the 85% being not determined, and we know that's sort of an estimate, but that gives us great hope that we are not determined by our genes. And I take it that this is also, this this movement here, or this change, is also being influenced by the, fi- by the findings of the Human Genome Project. Is that true? The Human Genome Project is interesting, and it was uh, full of surprises as we went along. Initially, the expectation was that we would find maybe 120, 140,000 genes. And that was a very reasonable expectation at the outset because we knew we had about 100,000 key proteins, and we knew that it takes a gene to synthesize a protein. So the model was that there'd be one gene for each protein. And so we, we thought we would find 100,000 genes each of which synthesized one of those 100,000 proteins. And we then thought, well, we know that protein synthesis is an important part of what our genes do, but what regulates the whole process? So if the uh, if those 100,000 proteins, those 100,000 genes are the notes in a piece of music, what's the conductor? What's the regulatory mechanism? Who's, right. who's, who's reading the score? And so we thought we'd find another maybe 20,000, 30,000 genes on top of that to explain how we, our bodies decide which protein to make. And so we thought we'd find that number of genes. And if you look at the scientific research over the years, what you find is that as the Human Genome Project progressed, we began to drastically reduce the number of genes we expected to find. We eventually wound up with just under 24,000 genes, so a very small number of genes 
far smaller than required to explain the biological com complexity of our bodies. And so that was a powerful piece of evidence that something else must be going on besides that central dogma of molecular biology, which, by the way, think of that, that term, central dogma of. This is not a modest <laughs> yeah. claim. This, yeah. is, this was thought to be the, the, the plank on which all biology rested. Yeah. So... Um, that, 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 that being upended created a huge shift in science, in science, just a big paradigm shift in science. And so we now realize that uh, there are all kinds of things are determining that, that orchestral score, that which genes are being turned on, which genes are being turned off, has a huge amount to do with your experience. And a simple example of that is, uh, for example, if you are driving your car down the highway, and another car suddenly and unexpectedly swerves in front of you. You take evasive action, you avoid an accident just in the nick of time, but afterwards you're left feeling shaky. What's happening is that within r literally two seconds of you recognizing that danger from the other car, you are taking action and your genes that code for stress hormones like cortisol like adrenaline are being turned on and within just a second or two you're having this surge of these proteins these hormones that help you prepare for the fight or flight response so these stress hormones turn these genes that, that code for those stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol turn on right away they turn on really fast and it has nothing to do with um something happening inside the cell it has everything to do with something happening from outside in the environment and so you're having this massive shift in the whole the whole uh, the whole sequence of which genes are turned on, which genes are turned off, and your organs, so your, your heart races, your breathing gets shallow, your muscles tense, all kinds of physiological, massive physiological changes just on the basis of an external event like the near crash. And so in, in, in these kinds of ways we're being affected and our genes are being turned on and off regularly by factors in the environment and again not not just external events like the near car crash but internal events as well like when you talk about to your wife or your husband or your son or your daughter about the car crash the next day or that evening you may relive part of that and then your body will undergo a similar kind of response with the stress shifts happening in your muscles and your breathing and so on, just remembering the bad events. So that, that's an example of how an, an objective physical danger can produce shifts in gene expression as well as the subjective re remembering, recall of a bad event can produce similar shifts. And so we're, that's why I have this, this, this term that we're our own genetic engineers. As we have those strong emotions, as we remember things, as we form core beliefs like the world is a dangerous place, I'm not safe, I don't belong, I have to be aware of, of threats, you can't trust anybody. People have these parades of core beliefs, and all of those things are literally shifting our gene expression moment by moment. Yeah, I think that, I think that is really good, and, I, and it shows how dramatically the picture of the of the human makeup has changed since the time of Francis Crick. On the other hand, we 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 are still at, uh, waist deep in the central dogma, Dawson. For example, we still have all sorts of people, including a lot of leading 
medical practitioners who are looking for the gene, you know, the the weight gene, or or the uh, genius gene, or the mathematics gene, or and it's a, we like to think that like uh, like medical illnesses are associated with a gene or a set of genes, so that we could find a magic pill that will change that gene and therefore alter uh, remedy the illness and and this is something that that I think we haven't quite got to yet we haven't quite advanced the medical profession to the point where we're, where they're taking a broader view of things and this is something I'd like you to talk about a little bit first of all this is Philip Camella this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion I'm very happy to be talking to Doss, Dr. Dawson Church the author of The Genie in Your Genes and Soul Medicine we're talking about uh, how the paradigm of genes has changed over time in this field of epigenetics and what it means. And Dawson, before that little break there, I was talking about how um, many, many folks are still immersed in, this, in the belief that the secret to health is to find the gene that ails you. Can you speak to that a little bit on where, where things are right now with that? A very current example of that, though, is the recent special issue of Time magazine was all about the human genome and about epigenetics, and it gave no mention to ways of shifting our genome, like meditation, like energy psychology, like energy medicine, even though there's plenty of evidence that these things dramatically affect which genes are, are expressed. Like, for example, if you calm yourself, if you do mindfulness after that car crash, then you'll shut down the genes that produce the signal to make cortisol, and you'll upregulate the genes that produce the the, 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 the counter-hormone, which is DHEA, your main health and, and, and rejuvenation hormone. And so this, um, this whole special issue of time gave short shrift to all of those, uh, those kinds of ways of shifting genes and had a huge amount of emphasis on things like a new technology to, called CRISPR, which is able to cut little segments out of, out of a gene, out of genes in all our cells, and replace or silence them. So there's this huge focus on technology and there's all this excitement around this or that technology, which we think is going to enable us to heal or, uh, or fix the genome selectively and fix diseases. And that there are these cycles, if you read, if you just go back through medical uh, reporting, just go back 50 years, and you'll find that there are these regular cycles of saying, oh, we found this drug, and this is going to cure all the stuff, and we found right. this gene, and this is the gene for dyslexia, and now we take out the gene for dyslexia, we have, just have to silence that gene, and, and then dyslexia will be gone. There are all these, all these, uh, these, these, these assumptions. And I, I asked a, a doctor, a prominent doctor friend of mine, <clears throat> he has a, a big integrated medical clinic, and I asked him why we are so fascinated by these mechanical external ways of manipulating our body, and we're so comparatively uninterested as a profession, as a medical, the medical whole medical profession, the healing profession, in these um, these non-invasive behavioral fixes like 
energy medicine, energy psychology, mindfulness, and so on. And it, it genuinely puzzles me. Like, we have this tremendously powerful tool. We have this enormous lever here that can change the expression of thousands of genes. And I'm talking about, for example, a study at Harvard by Herb Benson, and he showed that when they taught volunteers to relax, the relaxation response, that within six weeks, the expression of over 1,500 genes had changed in their bodies. So six weeks of learning to relax, and not only were people able to shift the expression of all those genes just by learning relaxation, but they also were as before. So there's no long pay off time here. It's not like that's not like the good, good results show up in our bodies two or five years later. They show up within six weeks. So we have these tremendously powerful tools that can affect over a thousand genes, sometimes thousands of genes, and in cascades of biochemical causation, then can affect hundreds of thousands of other genes and proteins. And so we have this tremendously valuable tool, and yet if you look at that special issue of time, we're totally fixated on finding the magic bullet that's going to affect one gene or one part of one gene. And I just was puzzling with a co- doctor colleague about this, this paradox. And he said he thinks it dates back to the times, Middle Ages, medieval times, times of the alchemists trying to turn base metal into gold. And now we look at that and laugh, say, what a silly idea. You, you turn lead into gold. Well, um, we're still looking for the magic bullet. We're still yeah. looking for some way of shifting things externally and we're all in medicine at least we're almost completely ignoring the role that um that volitional shifts like shifting your belief about the way the world is shifting the way belief about the way you are spiritual practice um regular meditation mindful meditation stress reduction all of these things are usually going to have way more of an effect on your body than virtually any prescription you would get for anything. So I'm not going to knock modern medicine here because I think that, in fact, I've written in that, that one book in Soul Medicine, there's a chapter called How to Find Your Ideal Practitioner. And we, we talk in that book about how to use the best of both allopathic medicine and integrative and, and alternative medicine in an integrative model. So I really believe that, you know, you have a massive bacterial infection, you need antibiotics, you have a broken arm, you need a split. There are all kinds of ways in which modern medicine is, is really useful and valuable. But try to make modern medicine bear the burden of all healing, a lot of which is placebo-based and psychologically and spiritually based, is really putting an unfair burden on, on that. And so why, we, um, why we're so fascinated by these external attempts to manipulate either the genome or our proteins or our cells, and we neglect the often far more potent healing healing influences of the intangibles like lifestyle, like thoughts, like emotions and beliefs is a real mystery to me and continues to be a mystery to me. And I, I'm, I'm doing every, everything I can actually in my profession to bring these kinds of interventions to the attention of medical professionals because they have an enormous effect on pain, on the regulation of all kinds of physiological processes from muscular tension to fibromyalgia to blood sugar and diabetes, they have a, a huge effect on those kinds of common diseases. And when you learn to use those things, many, many physiological benefits occur in your
in your body. So we do still have this this reporting in the popular press, and science is usually complicit in this, this very uh, odd search to turn base metal into gold in in neglecting the enormous effect that our lifestyle, our beliefs, uh, that, that very simple physiological things we can do, like mindfulness, like energy psychology, have to shift the way which genes are turned turn on and off and the way our bodies function. So that's really what I see as being the, 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 the real focus for medicine in the next century is to bring these things in and make them part of the, the front line of care. I'll give you just one, one study that is an example of this. Um, <clears throat> A, uh, a friend of mine called Paul Swingle and colleagues studied people who had been in auto accidents, and they gave them a brief treatment with this energy psychology method called EFT, or tapping, emotional freedom techniques, on, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And the people who got EFT compared to the randomized controlled group that did not get EFT had a huge number of positive physiological effects. Their heart rate stabilized, they came out of shock, their breathing stabilized, and when Swingle and his colleagues used EEGs to measure their brain waves, all of the brain frequencies of fear, panic, and pain subsided by comparison to the control group. So here we have this enormously effective um, way of shifting our physiological stress level right after an accident. And so that study was done 11 years ago, and you won't find EFT yet in ambulances, but um, we, we, we do have these tools at our disposal that can shift us radically. And I think that the crisis of cost, the crisis of, of, of autoimmune diseases, the crisis of lifestyle diseases is, is going to have the effect of making the medical system more and more pick up the value of these kinds of interventions. Yeah, th this is this is such a big topic because we're seeing this not only in medicine, but it's also in physics. Uh, we we we're searching for, and don't get me started on this, but you know we're searching for the ultimate particle when quantum theory says that there aren't particles out there, but and, and that I believe is related to this, but to get back to the point about how Time Magazine sort of promotes the what I would call the old orthodoxy or the central dogma uh, as opposed to the new, uh, new view of things through epigenetics, you know, to me there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues here. One of them is that we want it to be easy. We want to be able to take a pill and get better. We want to take a pill and lose weight. But then when you start moving into other fields, that doesn't make any sense. For example, you can't take a pill and become a marathon runner. You can't take a, you can't take a pill. You can't take a pill and learn how to play the piano. These things take time, practice, dedication, endurance, discipline. It takes, it takes movement. It takes research. And, and so, so I, to me, the media is feeding this, this, uh, this, this demand to make it as easy as possible. And I think we get fooled sometimes by technology that, 
you know, in the old days, doing research, you know, I'm a lawyer, okay, so I research, and you have to go to the library, or you have to do a Freedom of Information Act request. Now you just go online, and you Google it, and it's inst- and the information is there instantaneously. Some things just aren't that easy, and one of them, I think, is called life. That you have to go, you have to go through, you have to go through these, you know, the trials and tribulations of life in order to improve. The other thing that I think is very disturbing about the the uh, genes are the key and take the pill and you shall be better is really the lack of responsibility. It's it's really it's not take it's 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 this tendency that if there is a pill uh, that you could take that'll that'll fix your anger gene, you know your stress gene, that you don't have to actually do anything about it, that it's something you can't control, and therefore if you take the pill it'll get better, or that's the way you were born, you know. I mean I hate the. the hate to go to the uh, Lady Gaga song there you know she was born that way but but the to me this is this is sort of um, sort of feeding a public frenzy that they want to make it easy as possible and I just don't think that is gonna work um, but but it's, it doesn't work in fact um, there, there's a new report out just this week on the dangers of painkillers that we again want uh, a pill for, for pain, and a lot of those painkillers do work short term, but there is new evidence showing up that if you take a, a strong painkiller like OxyContin for a long period of time, over time it actually sensitizes the pain receptors in your nervous system, so you're more susceptible to pain long term than you were before. So all kinds of drugs that we, we thought were benign, we thought were effective, uh, maybe effective short term. Another example is antidepressants. There's no, new research showing that uh, people in countries like poor, poor countries like Brazil, India, where but there's no money to prescribe antidepressants, so what they get instead is psychotherapy. Uh, with psychotherapy, sure, people get depressed, go to therapy and emerge from therapy after a while. But in countries like the Western countries, northern countries, where antidepressants are freely available and way over-prescribed, that what then happens is people develop patterns of long-term depression. And what appears to be happening is that those antidepressants, while they are benign, maybe benign for severe depression and may have some value for temporary depression, if you keep on taking them, actually change the neurological structure of your brain in such a way as to promote long-term dependence and long-term depression. And so the, this is just one of the depressing facts about, yeah. about the way our, our drug culture has, has evolved, is people look for the pill rather than looking for what may look like a tougher solution to go to psychotherapy for a few sessions. Yeah. But uh, you're far better off recruiting your body's enormous pharmacopoeia, your body, ha- you're, you're, you know, you're synthesizing 100,000 proteins. Like if you want more serotonin, there are ways of doing that. If you want more DHEA, there are ways of doing it. If you want more oxytocin, there are things you can do just with your breath, with your body, with posture, with meditation, with, with filling your mind with positive thoughts that can generate this enormous number of positive neurotransmitters and hormones in your body. And so shifting your whole approach to, hey, 
what do I do to trigger these beneficial hormones without pills? Having that 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 as your your first line of, of thinking is so powerful. And of course, if you do need the medication, it's still there, it's still available. You can use it. But the way we as a society have gone to medication as the first line without even discussing with patients very often the other alternatives which have no side effects, which are under their control, which give them a sense of power over their own lives. The way we, 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 we look at medication only and, and, and neglect those things, I think is a, is a enormously, um, well, it's not only, um, it, I, I would go so far in some cases as to call it um, a, a scandal. Yeah. And the biggest example I can think of personally is a drug called Risperidone. And Risperidone was touted around 2000, 2001 as a treatment for PTSD. And um, I, was, I was involved in this myself directly because we were petitioning the, um, the Veterans Administration at the time to be able to do clinical trials in Walter Reed and other facilities of our uh, behavioral technique called EFT. It's free, it's quickly learned by warriors and veterans, and so we were approaching the VA, we were saying, let's get this into your system, let's try it out and see how well it works. And we were being rebuffed by the VA and at the same time, they were, they were spending huge amounts of money prescribing this drug called Risperidone, which has absolutely ugly side effects yeah. to many, many people. And what happened, it was in 20, 2011, there was a study showing, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, showing that Risperidone was no, of no more value in the treatment of PTSD than the placebo. Hmm. It had absolutely no effect on, on PTSD. But between that, before that study was published, the VA and the Defense Department spent one billion dollars on the Speridone. Wow! Almost one billion dollars, and for that same price, they could have treated every single veteran with EFT, our, our free behavioral intervention, side effect free, no drugs at all. They treated every single veteran with EFT twice over. Yeah. So we, again, we have this, this fixation on the drug, often big, big side effects, very costly, very harmful, while we totally neglect, and in fact, the late, you know, the guy who was the Secretary of State for Veterans Affairs, Eric Shinseki, was, we call him Ro Eric Roadblock Shinseki. He was like <laughs> the, the roadblock uh, to getting the stuff in. We had congressmen writing to Shinseki and saying, here is one of Dr. Church's studies. Please look at this uh, in the system. And Shinseki would write back letters. To, I mean, I'm, I'm talking like to Carl Levin, the, the chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, write back letters saying things like, no way, we're not going to do it. Yeah. So again, we have this huge bias in our society toward uh, the, the magic bullet, the, the pill, and it's huge bias away from these simple things like mindfulness, and it, it really hurts us in, in, in financial terms as well as, as, as in terms oh. of human suffering. Oh and yeah, that, yeah. That I mean, change. Yeah, I mean, you, you. There's so there, there's so much here that I wanna I wanna continue um, exploring because this this is a this is front and center of where our society is right now. This is Philip Camella. This is conversations. Beyond Science and Religion. I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Dawson Church, the author of The Genie in Your Genes and Soul Medicine. And we're talking about sort of the very, very difficult resistance that alternate forms of healing are having getting into 
the modern medical approach to health. And there's so much here. Let me let me just give you my own example. This morning, as I was as I was working out, there was a commercial about. Um, I couldn't believe it. It was it was about uh, asking the listeners whether they had some kind of pancreatic disorder, and telling the listeners they might, and therefore they should fill out this questionnaire just to see if they did. Because if they did, because if because if they did, then there's a new drug that the advertiser was promoting in order to treat the ailment that the listener never knew they had in the first place, and and this this is sort of I mean this this is to me uh, if if we want to be controversial here, and I have no problem with that. This this talk this is very much like a scandal. I and I I and I'm not the only one to say this, but in many ways, uh, the certain companies in the drug making industry sort of create diseases so they could sell a drug that they will that will cure the disease that they invented, and so or that they now defined, and and what what that means underlying all of it is that this quote unquote disease is really some some genetic issue that probably isn't that isn't probably uh originating in the genes it's it's originating somewhere else but because they have convinced you that it is part of your genetic makeup it's something that their drug will fix they sell you the drug as you pointed out with the PTSD drug they convince certain people such as the government to spend millions, if not billions, of dollars on a drug that really doesn't have any valuable effect. And this is a very, very important part of of modern society right now. But I'm but what what I think is happening, and I don't know if we're at the tipping point here, Dawson, but to me, when books like yours come out, the, the genie in your genes, and, and many other studies showing a real physical improvement in the body from these alternative healing methods. Now we're talking because this is really where science cannot ignore it. If, if, if there is a, and, and the placebo effect is clearly a good example of this, and there's all sorts of studies on how the placebo effect, how mere beliefs improve, change the physical makeup of the body. And I really like your approach here, and this is something we should, I think I'd like to have you talk about, is all we're talking about is reordering our priorities. Instead of thinking, oh, my, I, I have um, a pain in my head, should I take a drug? You know, I have a bad headache. Should I take a drug? Should I get an operation? Or should I meditate first? Should I do some other kind of alternate healing thing. And this is really, I think, what you're talking about. And what it, about reordering the methods of treatment. Isn't that really what you're promoting here? Yes, and reordering is good. In fact, the Pain Physicians Association has done this in the last few years, is they have a, they have a, they have a steps treatment. And in fact, the National Health Service in Britain also has that uh, model where it's step one, step two, step three. So you try, first of all, it's, it's based on the Hippocratic idea, first do no harm. So the yeah. first line of defense isn't to write the prescription. The first line of defense is to try the simple behavioral, low-cost, low-impact, um, 
possible solution. If that doesn't work, you escalate things and you try, you bring out uh, some other method. And so that kind of, of model of steps of care is, is a good one. Um, going straight to um, potentially really harmful drugs or surgeries is, is what you don't, don't want to do. I was talking to Dean Ornish, who's a legendary doctor yeah. and uh, one of my, my heroes. I was talking to him a few weeks ago, and we were talking about a study he did of, of patients with prostate cancer. He's been at prostate cancer, and he put them on a very simple behavioral lifestyle change program where they would meditate for half an hour a day, they would walk or do other light exercise for half an hour a day, and they ate a sensible plant-based diet. And what he found was that over the course of the study, which was eight weeks, that over 500 genes changed their expression. Over 500 genes were shifting, including those that are responsible for aging, immunity, and inflammation. So not just any old genes changing, but ones that are crucial for our, our lifestyle. But one of, the, um, one of the, the sad things about that study was that to get 30 men, because there were 30 men in the study, um, 30 men to enroll, they interviewed almost 300. And the other 250 plus men they interviewed elected conventional prostate treatment, hmm. which leaves you, which for the most part left them um, unable to have an erection and incontinent. In other words, they had no, no control of their bladder the rest of their lives. Yeah. So here, here men are being asked to enroll for a study, which just involves a little bit of exercise, meditation, and a sensible diet, and instead they elect a surgery, which yeah. will leave them, you know, and, and one, one guy said after the surgery said, I didn't know what incompetent and impotent really meant when the doctor discussed them in the office. I only realized after the surgery what this, that this means, you know, having a, a, a bag to hold my urine the rest of my life yeah. and never having sex again. I mean, he, he, was, he was like realizing that, that they, they were, that, that, that was the magic bullet, those were the side effects, uh, rather than doing this simple intervention. Yeah. So uh, the, 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 the extent of, it's not, and it's not just some sort of grand conspiracy by, by, um, by the pharmaceutical companies, although they certainly are very interested in selling us lots of drugs, but it's it's a pervasive mindset in our society that the doctor will fix you, the pill can fix you, and that you'll do that to the to even to your body's detriment instead of very simple things you might do, which we know from epigenetic studies and from lifestyle studies can make a huge improvement in your health and well-being. Yeah, and, and this this is this is something that I just haven't quite figured out either because it, it's pervasive uh, throughout a lot of science where the 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 model convinces us that we are limited creatures uh, descended from bacteria with with short lifespans. We can't control who we're going to be. You know, we we get sick. We have to take the pills. We have to get operated Where the alternative approach which is to think of ourselves more as unlimited spiritual beings who are in control of our destiny, it's, it's so much more promising. And to me, it's a no-brainer. And, and this, this gets to something I want to I wanna just discuss a little bit here because, to me, this is about experimentation, Dawson. Uh, Fifty years ago, 
if someone was to say in in a biology class, well, how much of your health, how much of your life, how much of your your um, your body is determined by your genes, and how much is determined by the environment? I mean, what would they have said fifty years ago? They would have said, "Oh, what? pretty much hundred percent of it, uh, it's right, all in your genes." Right, right, yeah. right, right, one hundred percent. So today, as you as you said earlier, it's more like fifteen percent or something like that. And I so I think that the experiment we all have at our disposal is to see how much we can control our health <laughs> through through thoughts, beliefs, prayer, emotion, because because you know th- this experiment is going on right now. And why should you sort of throw the towel in and say, well, that stuff is all quackery. Uh, we, I better just get, uh, get the operation. You know, and this, this is what I'm having a real hard time understanding. Although, when you're, when you're faced with that illness, people tend to go to the authority figures, and those are the doctors. And if the doctors say... If the family, you know, physician says this is what you have to do, there's not a lot of people who are questioning that. I mean, that's part of it, but but um, but I, I really think that there's a lot here that needs to be changed in in our mindset and in 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 our culture. I, I touched upon this a little bit, and you touched upon it in your book. I'd, I'd like you to talk about some experiments that you've done or that, you've, that you have studied uh, dealing with the effect of prayer or meditation. Because, you know, this is also a very controversial area because it sounds a little bit like parapsychology. Um, what, what, kind of, what kind of examples can you give of how strong belief heals yeah that's uh, something well worth considering because there's a lot of evidence for it and there used to be evidence in the forum of people filling out questionnaires like anxiety questionnaires or depression questionnaires we saw that after they learned to meditate after they they um, they had uh, a strong spiritual life that their levels of the psychological symptoms like like depression and anxiety would go way down. So we had that kind of evidence. What we now have, though, is going a layer deeper into their biology. We can look at their levels of DHEA, look at their levels of serotonin, look at their levels of other neurotransmitters, look at their levels of cortisol, and the evidence shows that the improvements to their physiological health are pervasive and widespread. If you're taking a, you know, the, the, a drug manufacturer's ideal drug is a bullet, a bullet hitting another bullet. You will have a molecular right. target, they call it. So your molecular target is another molecule which the drug will modify. Studies of prayer, meditation, belief, altruism, optimism, these intangibles, they seem so uh, lightweight. It's like, how can being an optimist possibly help you? How can being unstressed, how can having a stress reduction program like mindfulness-based stress reduction possibly help? You know, it sounds nice, you feel a little bit better, but what, what will the impact be? Here's what the impact will be. In one recent study of women, they looked at the difference in lifespan between women who were stressed and women who were unstressed. And they found that the difference in lifespan was between 9 and 14 
years. Mm. That's the difference stress made to their well-being. Wow. Absolutely. And what, what drug do you possibly have that would give you nine or more years of longevity? Well, right. we have one that's called, it's called getting on stress, doing yeah. that little bit of exercise, doing that little bit of mindfulness, doing that energy psychology. So uh, the experimental evidence shows now at the level of your genes, at the level of whether your cortisol genes are turned on or off. I did one randomized controlled trial published in a very prestigious psychiatry journal and we looked at just one session just a single session of intervention giving people either EFT or regular talk therapy or rest and we found that anxiety and depression dropped by more than twice as much in the EFT group as in the other two groups and cortisol declined massively so not only were people being affected psychologically with anxiety and depression improving, they were improving physiologically with large drops in your primary stress hormone cortisol. So we now have the ability to validate these kinds of, of soft practices like meditation, like energy work, using genomics by looking at the genome, how it's shifting about the products of gene expression like cortisol and DHEA, and also by brain states and uh, and brain weights. Yeah. So we can look at things like functional MRIs and see how different parts of the brain, especially the parts that handle fear, pain, panic, that that's all handled by the midbrain, the emotional brain. And research shows that if you give people successful therapy, those parts of the brain brain calm down. So it's affecting your brain. And so it's also even affecting over time, it's even affecting the very structure of your brain. In one study, for example, of twins, male identical twins, where one twin was a Vietnam veteran and the other twin never went to Vietnam, they found that the twins that went to Vietnam had the parts of their brains that handle memory and learning and cognition and executive decision-making shrunk yeah. by comparison to the twin that didn't go to Vietnam. So PTSD over time was producing changes to the structure and function of the brain. So that was what was going away in the brains of those who went to Vietnam and had PTSD was memory, cognition, learning, and executive functioning. Yeah. But something was improving in the brains of those who went to Vietnam. What was getting bigger and bulkier and more effective was the ability to send stress signals. So they were getting much better. Those brains were improving their ability to get frantic really quick. And that's what you don't want. That has those bad effects on your health. That's what was happening with those stressed women that shortened their lifespan between 9 and 14 years. Stress is having these big effects on you. So you, by your experiences, by your beliefs, by your memories, by your thoughts, are having these massively influential effects on your health and longevity. And the research is now pointing not just to psychological factors like anxiety and depression, but physiological ones like gene expression and the ratio, for example, of cortisol in your bloodstream. So these are you know, if, if these were if these were pills, they would be all all the rage. Yeah, uh, they, they would be, be, be malpracticed. They'll be prescribing them because they're, they're that effective. Yeah. So we have have them right there, and that's why I'm in a real real mission, Phil, to get people to pay attention to this and start to use these things in their everyday lives. Yeah. Well, I I think that you know it's always nice to know that there's that there's other people trying to uh, get this paradigm uh, shifted. 
because it needs it needs to be shifted sooner rather than later. Folks don't understand, or maybe they're starting to understand, that this particular issue, which is what is the source of illness and what is the most effective efficient way to cure it is so central not only to our health but also to the economy the amount of money that we spend on health care i think you put it in your book of something like two trillion dollars or something i forget the 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 amount of money i mean all the talk about obamacare and about medical malpractice and about the price of medical care this is all related and 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 it, it is going to take a great a great uh, shift here because money is at the bottom of this, and I think for those who are are um, cynical, um, you know there is there is a dollar sign involved here because clearly a lot of companies are making a lot, and a lot of people are making a lot of money off of off of the old fashioned way of curing people. But if we care about results as opposed to bank accounts we should be focusing on these alternative forms of healing and it's just like any other uh, industrial technological revolution there will still be jobs for people after the revolution we've had we, we've been through this so many times in, in our in our history uh, where for folks get all nervous that their that their jobs gonna go away the, you know the coal miners well the coal miners could be computer programmers or or the um, or the the old uh, surgeons could be uh, different kinds of healers. There's 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 always going to be room for for people that are doing things the right way and, and are following the right paradigm. The the the, um, the point here that I the, the last point I like you to address, although we've touched upon it, is is energy medicine um, and we we talked about it a little bit but every time I hear the word energy medicine I think of Albert Einstein and E equals MC squared I can't help but think about that because that you know it, that's just a famous equation I think it was called the most famous equation ever in science because it's so easy to remember but energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, which means that matter is really energy, condensed energy. And so that, I'm just saying this is what I think about when I, when I think of energy medicine. But Dawson, why don't you, as we're nearing the end here, talk a little bit about what energy medicine is. And, and, this, and you mentioned this tapping, uh, which most people probably don't know what that is. What what have what have you learned about the effectiveness of energy medicine, and what is what role does this tapping have? Well, I'll go ahead and tell you a story because what I can share. There was a woman called Glenda in one of my recent live workshops. I teach a lot of live workshops that uh, where we train people on these methods every every year, both for themselves and used professionally. So life coaches come, psychotherapists come, medical people come, and Glenda listened to a show like this that I did with Dr. Joe Dispenza earlier this year, and she listened to the program, and it was a brilliant interview. Joe is just as a close friend, and he has an amazing 
healer and also an amazing intellect and he has a grasp of neurophysiology that is is profound and so we were talking about using your mind to heal now glenda listened to the interview one hour interview she had a progressively advancing neuro, neurological, neuromuscular disease, and so her muscles were wasting. In 2010, she was forced to quit a job. She had her dream job. She loved her job, and she had to quit her job because she couldn't do it anymore because of this degenerative muscular disease. And she entered into a deep depression, happened to listen to this one-hour interview with Joe Dispenza that I did, and began to actually do the things we were recommending in the interview. Began to actually work with her mind, work with her thoughts, and shift her thinking. And she began to improve. She began to improve bit by bit by bit. So she was able to get out of bed. She was able to start to function more. She wasn't as depressed. She still walked with a cane, and she'd have these like seizures and attacks when she couldn't walk at all. But she began became began to improve. Um, just this last weekend, she was at a, at a live workshop with me, again, walking in on her cane, feeling, you know, okay, but still having this kind of shroud of depression hanging over her. Um, I have this amazing video of her, Phil, <laughs> the last day of the workshop. Throwing away the cane, she's dancing all over <laughs> the room. She's jumping up and down, dancing, moving her body around, yeah. showing full range of motion in every dimension, and it's just amazing. That's what energy medicine and energy psychology can do. It's those people with long-term chronic pain, those people with fibromyalgia. The research in for EFT tapping and fibromyalgia, uh, there's been one randomized controlled trial done of fibromyalgia and a lot of case studies, and they show that roughly a third of people recover fully from fibromyalgia, a third improve, and a third does. So that that possibility of doing that work for what the Mayo Clinic, what the National Institutes of Health say is an incurable disease, is so profoundly helpful. And so that's what these therapies can do. We've now got uh, lots and lots of research, over 20 randomized controlled trials of EFT, showing it helping with a huge range of problems from insomnia to physical pain, even organic problems like traumatic brain injury. In one study I did, six sessions of EFT for PTSD with veterans produced a 41% improvement in traumatic brain injury symptoms. So a lot of evidence now that these very simple kinds of approaches can produce uh, big shifts. And again, these aren't just anecdotes. These are randomized controlled trials published in medical journals, psychology journals. So we're at the, the dawn of uh, a century ago, it was World War One. We were grappling with things like influenza. There were rampant cases of typhoid, diphtheria, other kinds of uh, public health hazards. And within just a few short years, we pretty much eliminated cholera, diphtheria, typhoid, those kinds of problems. And no longer do we have issues like you know, the great influenza ep- yeah. epidemic killed more people than World War One. So that's, that's where we were back then. Now we're, our society is at this point where we discovered these tools, these energy healing tools. And they're energy because you can see them on energy sensing devices like the MRI, like the EEG, the EKG, EMG. You see shifts in people's brains and people's energy fields as they do these techniques. And we now are at the threshold of this moment in human history where we have the tools to eliminate a huge amount of mental health 
disease, me- mental health problems. We didn't have before. We now have, have ways of taking PTSD. And again, there have been three randomized controlled trials done of EFT for PTSD, showing that we take, take people with traumatic memories of you know, bad divorces, of car crashes, of combat, of death and loss and grief. And you do just six sessions with them. They're over over 80% of them are permanently free of those clinical PTSD symptoms. So massive shifts are possible. And so as a society, we now are at this moment when we have the ability in our hands to clear the, all of this mental and spiritual suffering just the way we have that ability, we developed that ability to clear all that physical suffering a century ago. And a century ago, there were a lot of opposing forces. The main doctor, she was a woman, called Elizabeth Baker that was on a crusade to eliminate typhoid and diphtheria among children in New York. A century ago, uh, she was on this, this massive public health crusade to shift the way children were treated in New York, and she did. She, eliminated, she pretty much eliminated those diseases uh, with her team in New York where she, where she worked, but there was massive opposition to her, her work. Uh, pediatricians complained to the mayor that she was, that the supply of, of sick children to their practices was drying up and that, that he should shut down her office. Uh, there was this testimony in, in Congress to try and shut her down. All these forces of opposition that when we, we, you know, people need to heal. People understand they need to feel good and they can feel good. And so it's, it's hard to crack an old paradigm. And there is opposition. But when these kinds of potentials are so readily within our grasp of doing something like eliminating most forms of mental disease that we know today, then this has to happen. There's just no way our society could, could go back into making these things inevitable when there's so much under our control and the solutions are so possible. So that's, that's really the yeah. moment we're in as a society, and we each can play our roles by tackling our own issues, tackling our own dysfunctions, tackling our own pain, our own mental health issues, and really making ourselves feel as good as possible. And I call this the epigenetic health cycle. You do a few things, you learn mindfulness, you learn tapping, you feel better, that motivates you to do more, you do more, you feel better still. And over time, you start to feel much better, and you start to reset even your cortisol level, your DHA level, you start to actually reset your hormonal levels, your brain function to a state, a natural state, a default setting of feeling good. And then when you do that, feeling good yourself, you then produce a good effect on people around you, and then society as a whole. So I think we're at this amazing and exciting threshold of a whole new era of healing in the world, and I'm just thrilled that people like you and me are spreading the word, and we're part of it. Yeah, well, I I think that this is, I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road, because you know, I'm very much into into changing the theoretical construct of science, moving from a materialistic worldview to a mind-centered worldview or a spiritual-centered worldview. And that is, that I think has to be changed from the top down. But in the, in the realm of healing, aging, health, sickness... This is where it affects all of us, and this this is where I think the revolution is going to have to be be most um, effective because, and it's only going to be through the old tried and true methods of science, which is results matter, repetitive testing, real life 
uh, studies and test case and research. And this is what is so great, I think, about this area, Dawson, is that there are uh, there's a mounting body of evidence that this is real. This is not just happy talk. We're we're seeing actual effects, actual improvements in the phys- in our physical well-being. And I might add we should not be surprised because nobody ever said we were really machines. It was a model that science put out there in order to study not only the human body but the world we live in. Quantum theory teaches us the world's not a machine, and I think alternative healing teaches us that the body is not a machine. And the sooner we we come to this conclusion and start incorporating into the way we treat health, the better. Uh, Dawson, I thank you very much for this, uh, I I hope, um, uh, exciting, or I should say, uh, to me, it was an inspiring conversation because this stuff is real. Uh, Your website, I believe, is www.dawsonchurch.com. Is that correct? Actually, the best website people okay. to go to is DawsonGift.com, because okay. there they can download a free copy of the EFT mini-manual cool. and get access to a bunch of videos as well. So DawsonGift.com. Okay, DawsonGift.com. And once again, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your time. I'm, I'm going to read one quote from your book that I think really says it all and what, what I think... Um, where things are heading, and it it says in your book at the end, you say something, it says that uh, it does not require that all individuals in a society wake up in order for the whole of that society to wake up. It does require a critical mass, but that mass can be surprisingly small. Remember that the Renaissance, a cultural earthquake that completely transformed medieval society in just 25 years, was sparked by a mere 1,000 people. So we don't need to convince everybody, but we need to put that. <laughs> but, but we need to put that right. critical. We need to put that critical mass together. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Join me next week when the guest will be Joel Fatinos, and we'll talk about my life contract. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.